Welcome again, everybody. Good afternoon. It is so great to see you here. Thank you for making the effort to be with us this afternoon. Uh, we know when we change our rhythm a little bit, our weekly rhythm, it takes a little bit of effort to make things happen. When we move locations, it takes all kinds of new effort to get our new rhythm down with setup and so forth. So it really has been just a, a testimony of the grace of God to see everybody, so many stepping forward, helping, serving in different ways, in new ways in order to make the Sunday meeting happen. So, so thank you for doing that. Uh, just a testimony of the grace of God in your lives. And I love gathering with you. Uh, it's a wonderful thing when the Lord knits your heart to a local church and this is my home and you're my people and this is where God's called me and I love gathering. It doesn't matter when and where we gather. I love being with you and worshiping the Savior together. So, so glad that you're here and thank you for all the extra effort it took to make it all happen. Mark chapter 12 is our text. So if you have a Bible, a device, and you'd like to open there to Mark chapter 12, I'd like to introduce the subject and the message by asking you a question to get you thinking along the lines of where the text is going to take us. What does it take in your mind to consider somebody to be good? In order for you to say, that's a good person, have you called for a reference for someone? For you to think about the person next to you, somebody around you, another person, What's, what's the criteria? What's on your mind? What would enable you to be able to say, I think that person is a good person or not? What's on the list? Everybody has some sort of functional criteria that you're working with in your life that causes you to think about the people around you. Now, can, it can vary. The answers can vary from culture to culture, depending on where you live, where you've grown up, what cultural environment. There's unique sets of values in different cultures that sort of feed into this idea that help you think about why or how somebody is good. It could be a, a unique point in history uh, that you live. I don't know if you knew this, but there, there was a day when if you went down to the bank and asked for a home loan, they would ask you about your church membership. Yeah, if they asked you about that now, it would probably be a reason not to give you a loan. I don't know, or we'll probably see that day. But just to say, at different times in history, there are different criteria that people use to evaluate whether a person is good. What is it for you? Some would say it's honesty. You know... I can tolerate a lot of faults, a lot of shortcomings in a person, but for crying out loud, if they can't tell the truth, that's just not a good person. I, at the very least, I expect somebody to at least tell the truth. Is it faithfulness? Does that person keep their word? Are they on time? If they make a commitment, do they follow through? Is it, are, they, are they faithful? Is that the criteria in your mind? It's like you notice that right away. If they're faithful, ah, I have a positive disposition towards that person. Is it justice that you don't judge people according to their class or according to their race, but you look at all people equitably and respectfully towards all people? And if you do that, then the perception is you're a good person. 
Is it purity? Have you grown up in what's become now dubbed the purity culture in the church? That's the main thing. It's a big thing if you keep yourself pure. Is that the criteria? Has that become the most important criteria? The first thing that runs through your mind, the first thing on your checklist to determine if a person is a good person. This question affects very much how we relate to one another, how we live together, especially how we treat one another. So it's not so surprising that a similar question was brought to Jesus. We're looking at Mark chapter 12. Let's read together beginning of verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Would you pray with me? Father, this text that we just read came from your mind, your heart, and has been given to us. It's been just read out loud in the hearing of all the people in this room. And those words were meant to go forth, to be spoken, to be heard, to be understood to be received, and to have an effect on our hearts. That's our desire this afternoon. Take these words, sow them into our hearts, and produce fruit in our lives for your glory. Amen. The great commandment that leads us to a great Savior. Great commandment that leads us to a great Savior. Let me just break down the text like this, the question, the answer, and the conclusion. First point is the question. The scribe comes. Let's answer first, who's asking this question? This was a scribe, an expert in the law. This was a Bible man. It's a man who's given himself entirely to study the Scriptures. He knows the Scriptures well. His whole life, his whole livelihood is the Bible. The law of God, that's what he thinks about, that's what he focuses on, that's what he uses as a lens to view the world. He's a Bible man through and through. 
In this particular situation, he appears to be acting alone. This is one of the scribes, and it's an unusual encounter. We've been seeing several encounters of groups of people approaching Jesus, usually with some sense of animosity or trickery or something to try and stump Jesus or catch him or trip him up or find ways to accuse him. This one, Mark presents to us as quite different. One scribe on his own, maybe separate from his gang, taking a different approach, an independent thinker, not too caught up in the peer pressure of the other scribes, willing to come on his own to Jesus and genuinely ask a question. Mark gives us a presentation here of a dialogue with Jesus that is very positive, very amicable, very unlike every other interaction that we've seen so far. This man observed Jesus respond to the Sadducees and possibly prior to that with the Pharisees as well, and was actually very impressed with Jesus. Impressed with his responses as he's observing, he's listening, he's paying attention. This man seems to be uniquely objective, not caught up in his gang, but listening, and he's impressed with how Jesus is responding, and he's drawn to him. And so he comes to Jesus with his question. Jesus which commandment is most important of all? What's the main idea? What's the big idea? What's most important? Now, in the Torah, there were 613 commands. 613 commands. And it was not uncommon for Bible scholars to begin sorting through a bit of a hierarchy about this 613. They would say, which ones are heavy and which ones are light? Heavy meaning these are significant. To obey this costs you more. And if you disobey these, the cost to you is more. The consequences are heavier. Everything about this law, whether it's your obedience to it or your disobedience to it, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's significant. You will feel the implications in your life. And then there are lighter ones. We would say today, all sin is sin. But certainly, some sins are weightier than others. The consequences of some sins weigh much heavier than others. They come at a higher cost. So there was a lot of discussion about that. Nevertheless, this question, the real essence of the question, was more about which commandment is above all. It was less about a sort of hierarchy, which one is the most important. The grammar of the question is actually laying into, Jesus, is there a commandment that sort of sums up the whole, that says it all? James Edwards in his commentary writes, the sense of the question is thus not which is the most important commandment, but rather which commandment supersedes everything as in, and is incumbent on all humanity, including Gentiles. In other words, what's the main thing? What's the main idea? Jesus, what would you say sums up the entire law of God? That was the essence of the discussion here. There is record of a Gentile coming to a rabbi 
somewhere around this time and saying something like this, make me a proselyte on the condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. In other words, give it to me in a nutshell. I will stand on one foot. That's how much time you've got to explain to me the essence of the law of God. Here I go. Go. Clock is ticking. You've got this much time. Until I lose my balance and step off my foot, that's how much time you've got to explain it all to me. And if I can't get it in that time, you lose. I'm not signing up. Abraham Lincoln was known to sort of grasp this kind of wisdom. He made a statement, something to this effect. If you can't explain plainly to the common person why you should go to war, maybe you shouldn't. Now think about it. Going to war has got to be one of the most complicated decisions filled with all kinds of complexities. Now multiply that a hundred times over because now we're talking about a civil war. So the actual decision had to be extremely complicated, and yet Lincoln understood the wisdom of this. If you can't explain it in a nutshell, if you can't bring it down to a simple, clear statement that everybody can understand, then maybe you don't got it. Maybe you're not on the right track. Maybe you shouldn't even go to war. And that's the kind of thing that this man is sort of asking. I had a funny slash embarrassing encounter early in my Christian life. I was out street evangelizing. So as a young, zealous Christian, what we would do is we would just grab our Bibles and we would just walk down the street. We'd meet a stranger. We'd say, do you know about Jesus? Strike up a conversation and tell them about Jesus. So I'm walking down the street. I am crossing the street. I am in between curbs, in the crosswalk, in the street, and I'm next to a guy and said something genius like, do you know about Jesus? And the man stopped cold. No, tell me. Mind you, we're still in the street. So he wasn't standing on one foot. It was basically... Okay, you've got till we get run over by a car in this intersection to tell me what I need to know about Jesus. I have absolutely no memory of what I said. I blocked it out of my mind entirely. I only remember how I felt when the man stopped me cold in the street and said, Okay, Buster, you got 30 seconds. What do you got? Well, could you tell somebody? why they should follow Jesus in 30 seconds? Could you tell somebody why it's a good idea to come to Sovereign Grace Church while they're standing on one foot? Is it clear enough in your mind and in your heart what it's all about in order to boil it down, put it in a nutshell, and say this is what it is and this is why it's so important. That's the question this man came to Jesus with. Let's look at the answer that Jesus gave. Jesus responds, he was unlike me, caught off guard in the middle of the intersection. Jesus knew exactly what to say. 
He knew precisely what the answer was. And so he goes to this famous thing called, in Hebrew called the Shema. This is a, a, a pronouncement in Jewish history, a declaration, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus goes on and says, and there's a second. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if you realize that, but the, uh, the golden rule is actually in the Old Testament. Moses said it long before Jesus did. Leviticus 19, 18. There it is. So the summary, the in a nutshell, the whole Bible, everything you need to know about who God is and what it means to be right with him. Here's the summary of the law. To be a good person, love God with your entire life. Love others like yourself. Let's break it down a little bit, dig into some of the detail. The Lord is one. This is the starting point. The starting point for any commandment. So a little preface. Before we tell you what you have to do, let's be clear, you understand the playing field here. The Lord is one. This is the statement that the, of the people of God's fundamental confession about God's lordship. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me quote this. It's one of my favorites. It's from John Frame in his book, The Doctrine of God. It goes like this. The first thing, and in one sense, the only thing we need to know about God is that he is Lord. Surely no name, no description of God is more central to Scripture than this. There is one thing you need to know about God. And this is the preface before we can talk about any kind of commandment, any kind of being good. One thing has to be clear. He is the Lord. He's over all. He's the Lord, the only Lord. You have to know this. In fact, nothing will make sense after this unless you have this down right. You can't skip this. You can't, as I opened up this message, say, so what is it in your mind that qualifies a person to be a good person? You can't jump to anything like that unless you have this starting point. Nothing works after this without this. Everything can and will make sense after this with this. Hear, O Israel, hear, O people of God, the Lord, he is one. He's one. This speaks of his unity, and of course we have our Trinitarian God, our doctrine of the Trinity, that there are three persons that combine together as one and that he is perfectly unified within himself. But the statement more so and, and beyond that is, is to say that it's speaking to the uniqueness of the Lord. There's only one of him. There's no other God like him. 
He's the one unique Lord. And while people may acknowledge many gods, there is only one true God, and there is no other God that can compare to him. The Lord, your God, is one, unique, above, above all. He was, he is, he will forever be, he cannot change. He always was the Lord, he always will be the Lord, he is the master of all. That's who he is. And from this, from this foundation, this springboard, you and I are called to love him. Not merely obey. The obedience actually comes from love. To say, can you imagine, this is the greatest commandment. You and I are called to love the Lord our God with all our being. To love him. We're talking about having a a warm disposition in our hearts that's characterized by an affection and an esteem and a high regard for him and for who he is. Everything we do is meant to be the Chick-fil-A philosophy, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Everything I do for God, it's my pleasure. I don't just do it because I'm obligated to do it. I don't just do it because he commanded me to do it. I do it because I love him, which means it is my pleasure in my soul to do what he commands. That's in my heart. That's what we're called to. Every act of obedience, we are being told the greatest command is to do every act of obedience as your greatest pleasure in your heart. The idea of some perfunctory duty towards God, sitting in church while you'd rather be somewhere else, does not meet the essence of this command. Serving God against your better judgment, serving God against your will, doing it because it's expected of you, doing it because you feel the pressure of the people around you, doing it because you want to look good, none of that qualifies. The greatest command is that you do it out of love. With our entire being, loving with your heart, your inner self, the very core of who you are, the very center of your being, you must love him From there. And with your soul, your heart and your soul, it's actually kind of difficult to distinguish between those two words. It's difficult to parse out the difference. In fact, I'm not sure that the Bible clearly does. In fact, in Hebrews, when it talks about the sharpness and the power of God's word, and it says it's able to divide between the soul and the spirit, I'm inclined to think it's a bit of hyperbole like you can't because they're like kind of the same and yet the emphasis is just how sharp the word of God actually is still talking about the center of who you are who you are as a person and with your mind your whole mind here Jesus adds a word there's three categories in the Old Testament when Jesus quotes it there's four and this is the one he inserts Love the Lord with your mind. 
The call is to love the Lord with how you think. Ouch. My thought life? You mean when I think it, that's supposed to be honoring and loving towards the Lord? I don't want to tell you all the things that I think sometimes. And with all your strength, meaning all your might, all your capabilities, all your physical aptitudes, everything about you, your love for God will have physical expression, physical outworking. We're not just called to think and feel. We're called to do, to act, to live out love in actual, material, physical realities one with another. Now, the point Jesus is making here is not to parse out each dimension of the human person and to try and divide it up and try to distinguish, well, okay, the heart means this, the soul means this, the mind means this, and your strength means this. That is, that is actually to sort of miss the point. The point is that he's like loading up every term possible of every dimension of who you and I are as a person to make the point you're supposed to love God with your whole being. Everything about who you are, no matter what component we're talking about of your human personality, of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human being, all of it, all of it is for the Lord. You and I are one person before the Lord. Been having many conversations with Bill as he serves the church as an elder, works in the marketplace, has a family at home. And I said, Oh, Bill, I remember those days. I would go to work. I would rush on a lunch hour to go to a pastor's meeting. I would go back to work. Then I would come home. Then I was a dad. Then I was a father. Then I was a worker. Then I was a pastor. And it was like I was crying out to God and asking for counsel. Oh, I feel like a divided man. My head is spinning. Who in my hat kept changing and shifting out in this direction, that direction, thinking about this, thinking about that. And I remember a friend just helped me with that simple principle. You are one life before the Lord. Every aspect of your life is the Lord's. You're not being divided between something for God and something for you and something for them. It is all. You are all the Lord's. Whether you're at work or at home or at church or in the marketplace or whatever, you are one person, one life to the Lord. And Jesus adds a second command. Love others as yourself. He was asked for one. He gave them two. Because the two go hand in hand. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus was not asked for two. 
He was asked for one, but he gave them two because we needed two. Because if he didn't give us two, we'd stay with the one and we wouldn't do the second. We'd find a way to believe the one without doing the second. And he's saying, that's an impossibility. You would be lying if you tried to do that. Oh, how we can fool ourselves. Oh, I love God. Oh, I love God. I just can't stand the people. And Jesus is saying, those two things are incompatible. Because the two go hand to hand. Loving God, loving the people around you are two of the same. We need the second to verify the first. Otherwise, we'll deceive ourselves with the first and ignore the second. Now, this all circles back to God's love for us. We had this declaration at the outset, he's the Lord. And that, in a sense, kind of comes across like, well, that should be enough. He's just, he's the Lord. He's over it all. So, do what he says. But you have to ask the question, what kind of a Lord are we talking about? And this makes all the difference. I was reading through recently, through the book of Hosea. Let me just pull out some phrases from Hosea chapter 11. This is about God's love for his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Oh, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I'm God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. This is the kind of Lord. Oh, these are my children. I called them. I raised them up. I taught them how to walk. I've rescued them. My heart is for them. We are called to love God with all our being. And we are called to love others because he first loved us. There's John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. See where the command is coming from. The command to love God with your whole being. Why? Because he's the Lord and he's the Lord who first loved us. Point number three, the conclusion. The account ends with a surprising comment by Jesus. This dialogue has gone extremely well. We don't have another like it. 
You don't have a religious leader coming to Jesus and having such a positive interaction with Jesus. Everybody's pleased. The man is pleased with Jesus. Jesus is pleased with the man. The, the conversation was very amicable, very positive. And then Jesus responds with, and you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus had just turned the tables on this man. He had just completely altered the essence of this whole conversation. The conversation began as two men were both looking at the law of God and having a discussion. Two men side by side. The law of God. Jesus, what do you think about the law of God? Can you tell me something that sums up the entire law of God? Well, my friend, yes, I can. As a matter of fact, I have an answer for you. Here's my answer. And then Jesus makes this statement. He saw that he answered wisely, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom. I will never forget the story that Mike Bullmore told us in a class. Mike Bullmore pastors Crossway Church in, in uh, Wisconsin. He teaches at Trinity Evangelical School. He teaches at our Sovereign Grace Pastors College. I was in one of his classes. He tells a story about the man that went to go see the Mona Lisa. The man that traveled to Paris, goes to the Louvre, walks up. He has a life goal. I want to go and I want to see the Mona Lisa. And he walks up and he stands in front of this guarded painting, this famous painting, and looks at it and makes some comment like he's kind of unimpressed. It's not that great. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's actually quite small. So it doesn't surprise me that there's a little bit surprised. You think this is a big grand painting. It's not. It's a tiny little thing. And so he's standing looking at this small little picture, and he says, ah, not so impressed. But there's a museum attendant who's guarding the painting and observing what's going on here. And as he hears the negative reaction from the man, he has to explain to the man, my friend, he says, we are no longer judging this painting. It is judging you. Meaning, this painting is now so well established as a masterpiece you don't come and judge the painting and tell whether you like it, not, whether you think it's good or not. No, the painting lets you know whether you have an eye for art. The painting lets you know whether you're able to recognize a piece of art or not. Look, my friend, nobody's asking for your opinion about this. This is telling you an opinion about you. And Jesus is in this conversation this man is quizzing him, inquiring. It's positive. It's cordial. And then Jesus turns and says, you, my friend, you are not far from the kingdom. Can you put yourself in this man's situation and imagine how you would feel to hear Jesus say that to you? I mean, you're hitting it off with Jesus. You're talking with Jesus. It's going really well. He seems to like you. You like him. You're getting along fine, and all of a sudden he looks you in the eye and says, hey, by the way, you're not far from the kingdom. Not far. Near. You're not in. You're close. You're not in. 
The man was near. Near because he realized that a person being either good or bad was decided up against the law of God. He knew that much. He was near because he realized how important the love of God was and how the love of God was at the heart of all our obedience to the law, far more than acts of sacrifice. He was near because he was face-to-face with Jesus and responding very positively to Jesus' words. That's close. That's near. He was near because apparently he was willing to set himself apart from his peers, stand on his own, think independently, go to Jesus, interact with Jesus, and not be persuaded by his negative peers that were working against Jesus. He was willing to go and decide for himself whether Jesus was good or not. He was near in many ways, but he was not in. I'm sorry, friends. A positive dialogue with Jesus, a clear understanding of the Bible, An affirmation about the importance of love is near, but it's not in. That's what you got. If that's all you've got, you might be near, but you're not in. He was not in because. He was not in because no one is able to be justified by the law. Romans 3.24 By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You understand, the commandment that I read, that we've been talking about, you are called to love the Lord your God with all your being, your spirit, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Do you understand that law is meant to do one thing? Convince you. You do not and cannot love the Lord your God with all your being. It is only meant to prove what is there. He was not in because the law cannot save us, but there to show us the reality of our hearts. Who could love God so entirely? Could, can, we, can we go back a couple hours, a few minutes, and evaluate? Have I loved the Lord God with all my being, in every aspect, in every way. Who could do such a thing? If I have a good moment in the day. He was not in because you and I, and he himself requires a righteousness apart from the law. That's the only way in. Back to Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The Bible, from the very outset, is meant to point us while pointing out our lack and our deficiency, it points us to the one who truly loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. That was the righteousness provided to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is our gospel. Our message, our gospel is not, look at the law, you're called to love God all the time with every fiber of your being. I realize maybe you don't. Maybe it hasn't been a good week. So let's. Our message takes us to that point of desperation and says, I know, you know what's going on in your heart. I have a way. I have a solution. There is one who loved God with all his being. And now you can be in. By faith, you can stand in Christ, you can stand in him. And that's the solution. And that's the path. And that's the gospel. And that's what we need. And when you stand in Christ by faith, ah, I confess my lack. I confess my sin. I confess my need for another for a righteousness outside of myself. And I receive that what Christ is and what Christ has done for me. And I receive that by faith. You are therefore and thereby in Christ. And the work of the Spirit begins. And a new heart is planted. A new heart that begins to say, more and more as we grow, it is my pleasure. It's my pleasure to do the Lord's will. It is my pleasure to do what he calls me to do. The conflict and the fight lessens and changes in our soul. And now the predominant new birth that has taken place in my heart inclines me with now a newly formed, warm, affectionate, high esteem towards the Lord. Ah, it's my pleasure to serve him. We can have the worship team come on up as we're coming close to closing. So what makes a person good? Well, the answer to being a good person is that you love God with all your being and that you love others as you love yourself. There's the answer. But this command is a command that isn't our solution. It only reveals our hearts. But we turn to the one 
who came and satisfied all the demands of this law and made a way for us to be brought in into good standing, right standing with the Father. This man was near the kingdom. Jesus was near the cross where it would all be fulfilled. He was days away. He was steps away. He was making his way to Jerusalem. He was making his way to that moment in history that we celebrated as we gathered around the table, as we ate that piece of bread and we drank that cup to celebrate that moment where Jesus did what it took to make it all possible for you and I to become good. How do we love God with all our being? It begins by being in Christ. And for those of you who have been a Christian for a long time, it begins there, but it is, a, it is a daily coming back to. It is a daily living out who we are. We never tire of the gospel. We never weary of it. We never grow out of it or beyond it. We need it constantly. We need it daily. You need it today. You'll need it tomorrow when you wake up. You'll wake up tomorrow. What does it mean to be good? It means I must be in Christ. Let's stand together. Father, take this word as we prayed at the beginning, work it into our souls to bear fruit. We pray for hearts to be softened towards the gospel. Even for those that have been a Christian for a long time, again, just a refreshed tenderness of, oh, Jesus, thank you for what you've done to transform my life for your glory. In Jesus' name, let's stand and sing.